Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. And a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. And we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa vows to tackle the scourge of corruption and African countries call on the European Union to ban ivory trade. In economics news, South African Reserve Bank cuts lending rates by 25 basis points. And in sports news, a Kenyan Sevens rugby coach names 13-man squad for Commonwealth Games. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Controversial Kenyan lawyer and self-declared general of the newly formed national resistance movement Meguna Meguna has been deported from Kenya. This comes despite a court ruling finding three senior officials in contempt for refusing to release him. Meguna was put on a plane to Dubai. Earlier, a court ordered the Interior Minister, the Inspector General of Police and the Head of Immigration to appear for sentencing. Suspected terrorists have reportedly been dislodged and weapons seized by Burkina Faso security forces in a forest in the east of the country. According to the official news agency of Burkina Faso, local villagers reported to police that they found a group of suspected terrorists in the village of Bakani. The defense and security forces of Burkina Faso were sent to the village where they seized a large quantity of weapons and ammunition. The forces also found laptops in the place during the operation. At least two suspected terrorists were injured. South African diplomats have met with the senior leadership of the United Nations peacekeeping operations to discuss how the country can root out sexual exploitation and abuse within its ranks in the peacekeeping missions. The South African Broadcasting Corporation earlier reported that the UN was reviewing the deployment of South African troops to its peacekeeping missions over growing concerns of misconduct and ill-discipline within its ranks. A senior team led by South Africa's ambassador met with the Undersecretary Generals for Peacekeeping and Field Support to find a way forward as it relates to the current deployments in the MONUSCO mission in the DRC. Sherwin Bryce Peace reports. They met for over an hour on Tuesday after SABC News reported on frustrations from within the UN over how South Africa was responding to questions related to its long-term strategy in stamping out sexual abuse and exploitation among troops it deploys to foreign theatres under the UN flag. 
South Africa says it would be open to joint investigations with the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services after learning that this was already being done by other troop-contributing countries investigating similar cases. Ambassador Jerry Matila indicated that he'd sought authorization from Pretoria to sign onto the Secretary-General's compact on preventing sexual exploitation and abuse. Some 90 countries have already done so, while regular meetings with the UN will continue after acknowledging that some miscommunication had taken place. At least 68 people have been killed in a fire following a riot by prisoners at a police station in the Venezuelan city of Valencia. The blaze reportedly started after prisoners set fire to mattresses in an attempt to break out. Police used tear gas to disperse relatives who had surrounded the station. The BBC's Nicholas Rocher reports. The incident happened early on Wednesday when prisoners in holding cells at the headquarters for the Carabobo State Police set fire to mattresses in an attempt to break out. A blaze spread quickly, trapping many prisoners inside and even some women and children who were visiting. A Carabobo State official, Jesus Santander, said the state was in mourning. Relatives of the prisoners say many may have died from smoke inhalation. The Attorney General's office has sent investigators to Valencia, but so far they've said very little about the blaze. And finally, Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai has returned to Pakistan for the first time since Taliban militants shot her. Yousafzai, now aged 20 and studying at Oxford University, was shot in the head by a gunman when she joined a campaign for female education in 2012. The trip is expected to last four days. The BBC's Sharu Shahani reports. Malala Yousafzai hasn't been back to the place she once considered home since October 2012. Arriving in Britain as a wounded 15-year-old, she first spent her time in hospitals, then in school, moving on to Oxford University and speaking around the world on girls' education, becoming, along the way, the world's youngest Nobel laureate. She'd once said she wanted to return and help her country. On this visit, she'll meet the current Prime Minister and a host of other dignitaries, but it's unclear whether she'll return to SWAT, where she was shot in the head, neck and shoulder. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, giving you the African perspective. The South African government says it is going to work hard at combating the scourge of corruption in state-owned entities and in various government departments. Answering questions in the National Council of Provinces, Deputy President David Mabuza said in light of state capture allegations in various SOEs, government has a mammoth task to defend what he calls public institutions. Mabuza says government will allow the processes and investigations underway to continue 
continue as part of other means in fighting corruption. He says government is currently speeding up the process of conducting a lifestyle audit of the members of the national executive. Abongwe Kobokan reports. It was the first time that Deputy President David Mabuza, in his capacity as the leader of government business, was grilled in a question and answer session in the National Council of Provinces. The first question to him was whether government has taken any measures to stop the allegations of criminal activities and stealing of the public funds at state-owned entities. Mabuza said there is a renewed commitment by government in the fight against corruption. We are putting in place mechanism to detect and fight all shapes and forms of corruption. We note that corruption is a cancer that we must not allow to grow. We want to stem the leakage and uproot corruption from our ranks, be it in the form of a traffic official on the road, a teller at home affairs, in his State of the Nation address this year, President Cyril Ramaphosa had announced that members of the executive will be subjected to a lifestyle audit as part of combating corruption and demystifying the perception that some cabinet members are involved in corrupt activities. So it's not just an exercise to please whoever. It's, it's, it's an exercise that is needed by a country like ourselves, as South Africa, within the continent of Africa so that good governance must at all times be projected and be upheld. So those who are in leadership position at all given time must try and lead by example. Mabuza was also asked whether the government intends to conduct an audit of all religious groups in the country in order to establish religious establishments that are used for criminal activities. And this question was in the context of what happened at Engobo in the Eastern Cape, where five police officers and a soldier were shot dead last month when criminals attacked Engobo police station. We request our religious leaders to stand up and condemn these acts because this seeks to undermine the church and what the church stands for. So if people are using the name of the church wrongly, those who are in church must stand up and defend the church. On the question of land expropriation without compensation, Mabuza told the NCOP that already government has started engaging traditional leaders as part of the process since parliament has agreed that this matter must be dealt with. Some have put claims as traditional leaders, claiming land next door that belongs to another traditional leader. That has created a tension amongst themselves. And we said... Let this tension not divide them because we are looking at the bigger problem. So they must unite because they are, they are fighting over small pieces of land that are undeveloped, uh, that don't have any economic benefit. That was South Africa's Deputy President David Mabuza ending that report by Abongwe Kobokana in Parliament.
Civil society, former and current South African political activists, including freedom fighters, have called on the ANC-led government to make sure that corruption is soon a thing of the past. This came out during the first anniversary of the death of struggle icon Ahmed Kathrada at the Constitutional Hill in Johannesburg last night. His widow Barbara Hogan says she's delighted with the support she's been receiving since the passing on of Kathrada. Abongile Dumako reports. Family, friends and fellow South Africans gathered at the Constitutional Hill in Johannesburg last night remembering an icon who played a huge role in the struggle for freedom. Ahmed Katrada was described as a hero who never gave up the fight for an equal society, irrespective of color or race. His widow, Barbara Hogan, says she is delighted to see South Africans from all walks of life showing how much her late husband meant to them. But the former cabinet minister says more still needs to be done in government to ensure that corruption is eradicated. Hogan says those in authority must be on the lookout for those who seek to enrich themselves in the name of democracy. In order to understand the history of our last 20 to 25 years, we need to understand, and I really think this is not a glib saying, but we need to understand why some people who were in the struggle decided that their way forward was to enrich themselves in the name of democracy, and why others refuse to enrich themselves. Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Godan says it's surprising that some former and current cabinet ministers continue to deny their involvement in an alleged state capture. He says even though there is overwhelming evidence leaked in the media, but some people think they can fool South Africans with the hope that they will believe them that they are not corrupt. Godan says there is a number of people who are determined to continue to do the right thing in government. Because the year after this capture phenomenon began to identify itself in more graphic terms, we learned about Bell Pottinger, we learned about the Gupta emails, uh, but even today it's fascinating to meet people whose names appear in those emails and they say, but I don't know anything about it. Uh, that's not me. I, I don't think those emails are correct. And yet there's so much of evidence abundantly available uh, to connect all of these people to the phenomenon of capture. Struggle icon Reverend Frank Chigane says he's happy that the ANC elective conference has come and gone and that now the governing party is working on restoring the trust and dignity of the liberation movement. Reverend Chigane says the ANC needs to cleanse itself from the debt it's shown where corruption was an order of the day and nothing was done about it. I must say that this was costly for him. He was insulted by young people within this liberation movement and older people who thought that was justified. And I just want to say, post-Nazrek leadership have a responsibility to atone for this disgusting behavior of those members who did what they did against Comrade Cathy. The Ahmed Katrada Foundation has announced that it will launch a workbook in April which has all the teachings by the late Katrada on what was happening during the dark days of struggle in South Africa. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Let us all unite and celebrate together. This is indeed.
a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of life. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigaba has apologized to King Lizia III of Lesotho for his treatment by immigration officials at the South Africa-Lesotho border post recently. Gigaba says there have been countless challenges at some border posts that need to be dealt with. He says the Lesotho port of entry had been problematic for some time. Gigaba also briefed the media about his department's readiness for the Easter holidays. Fennel Schumer reports. Home Affairs Minister Malusi Gigabam says he will be meeting with his Lesotho counterpart to address the issue of King the III and other related challenges. This followed complaints on social media about the border posts by disgruntled frequent travelers. They alleged that border officials have deliberately slowed down services and Lesotho passports are destroyed when travelers overstay due to delays. Gigaba says he's concerned about the allegations. First of all, I want to join the Minister of International Relations in expressing our sincere regret for the experiences of His Majesty King Litsia. And we are committed to resolving the challenges. I will be at the Maseru Bridge, port of entry, with the top officials of the department. Among others, I will have a courtesy meeting with the Minister of Home Affairs, Minister Au, at the port of entry, where we will deal with a number of challenges that we are experiencing. Several officials working at the South Africa Lesotho border post were arrested in the past. They are still on trial for a variety of offenses, including bribery and corruption. Gigaba also briefed the medium about the department's readiness to extend services at selected ports of entry during the Easter holidays. He says countries sharing borders with South Africa have been engaged. The extension of operational hours at ports of entry commenced 27th of March up until the 6th of April 2018. Stakeholders at ports of entry and the countries sharing borders with the Republic of South Africa have been engaged and agreed on the dates to effect the extended operating hours. The increased movement of travelers further requires that ports of entry are fully capacitated. This therefore makes it imperative for ports to be well prepared at all times to execute and facilitate traveler movement, also to mitigate illegal movements and transgressions. Gigaba says immigration officials will work closely with the police and other law enforcers to curb transgressions at ports of entry. He says contingency measures are in place to avert congestion 
of human movements, among others. The upsurge in traveler and vehicular movements puts a strain on limited resources at the ports of entry. This means that additional human resources must be deployed as required to ensure reasonable turnaround times and avoid congestions at ports. All stakeholders in the border environment are mobilizing resources to address the shortage by either deployment of additional staff or providing for overtime. The Department of Home Affairs has reaffirmed its commitment to reclaim and reassert state authority in the country, in terms of which South Africa's borders must be effectively safeguarded and secured. The planning for the Easter period commenced immediately after the 2017-2018 festive season. Gigaba has assured South Africans the country's borders are effectively safeguarded and secured at all times. Fanuel Schuma in Pretoria. The Africa Diaspora Forum is calling for refugees and asylum seekers not to pay for health care in South Africa's public hospitals. This has emerged during a discussion on access to health care for migrants in South Africa, hosted by the Human Rights Commission in Johannesburg yesterday. Due to political instability and poor economies in some countries, South Africa has a history of migration and hosts a considerable number of migrants due to its economic opportunities. However, some immigrants say they experience xenophobic behavior and they are required to pay their medical bills upfront by some state hospitals. reports. Parties representing foreign nationals and several NGOs made representations on migrant patients' rights. The South African Human Rights Commission had how one pregnant lady lost her baby after she was turned away for not having 7,000 rand to pay upfront so she could deliver her baby in hospital. Africa Diaspora Forum Chairperson Mark Bafo says this discrimination has to stop. On uh, many hospitals, Migrants have been confronted to that. When, when you cannot show a document, they say, go and get your document. And uh, many of them, we know that uh, the Homer first told us that they only give papers to only 4% of people, meaning that 96% of people are undocumented. That government knows. Uh, and that's why we are not comfortable when people are talking about illegal migrants. The South African Human Rights Commission is often approached by migrants who experience this kind of discrimination in the country's hospitals. The commission's legal officer, Tenjiwe Jonas, says they've had a case where a Zimbabwean lady was asked to sign an admission of death from the Charlotte Madrege Hospital in Johannesburg before her three-year-old could be treated. She was supposed to pay 19000 to the hospital. Migrants and refugees, asylum seekers, are people who are marginalized, uh, discriminated in a daily basis. The issue here is not about who they are. The issue is about who they're supposed to be in respecting people's uh, rights. What do we believe at Sonke is that when someone is educated, he knows, then some of the issues can be avoided. The Sonke Gender Justice is calling for social cohesion and to educate communities as well as healthcare workers not to ill-treat people simply because they are migrants. Migrants and refugees, asylum seekers, are people who are marginalized, uh, discriminated in a daily basis. The issue here is not about who they are. The issue is about who they're supposed to be in respecting people's uh, rights. 
what we believe at Sonke is that when someone is educated, he knows, then some of the issues can be avoided. That report by Horisani Sitole. Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. It's 8.24 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The National Prosecuting Authority of South Africa has held a three-year sentence handed to former real estate agent Vicky Momberg as a victory for the Constitution. One year of the sentence is suspended. Momberg was found guilty on four counts of criminal jury after racially attacking a police officer in 2016. In the video that went viral, she can be heard using the K-word a number of times at the police who tried to come to her assistance after a smash-and-grab incident. Jermaine Grecher reports. Presiding Magistrate Pravina Rugunandan handing down her judgment. Ms. Momberg, it does not give me pleasure to impose the sentence I'm going to impose today. It is in fact a sad day for me, but it is inevitable. An outrage to racism should not be condescendingly branded as irrational or emotional. This is not so only because the K-word is an inescapably racial slur which is disparaging, derogatory and contemptuous. You are sentenced as follows. Counts 1 to 4 are taken as one for the purpose of sentence. The accused is sentenced to three years imprisonment, of which one year imprisonment is suspended for a period of three years on condition that the accused is not convicted of criminal injury committed during the period of suspension. Immediately following the sentence, Momberg's legal team asked that she be released on bail pending her application for leave to appeal. But the magistrate denied bail. Instead, Momberg has been remanded in custody until her application for leave to appeal is heard next week. This is the first time that someone has been sentenced to a prison term for crimin injuria. The magistrate did indicate that previous non-custodial sentences have obviously not acted as a deterrent for racists. The MPA's Pindi Lowe says this judgment is a victory for the courts and for the constitution. This is a landmark ruling and we believe that it should set precedence for other uh, racial related cases. It's very crucial for us as a rainbow nation to coexist with one another, to respect one another. And we therefore believe that this ruling today is giving hope to all South Africans that the law is on their side. They need not be ashamed and sit in their own corners enduring racial comments from others. The law is there to assist everyone. The magistrate found that Momberg had not shown any remorse for her actions and had not made an effort to change her beliefs or behavior.
She said this was evident in Momberg's treatment of a black social worker assigned to her case, who told the court how she had also been subject to Momberg's prejudices. Momberg left the court in tears. She will appear in court again on the 4th of April to apply for leave to appeal. I'm Jermaine Kricher at the Randberg Magistrates Court. The European Union says it takes note of the request from 32 African leaders to end the legal trade in ivory. Earlier this month at a conference in Botswana, the African leaders expressed their concern that Europe has become both a destination for ivory and a transit hub. From Brussels, our Europe correspondent Jack Parrock reports. The elephant population in the savannah is now at around 352,000, down from 1.3 million in 1979. Poaching has depleted numbers and the European Union has responded to the call from 32 African countries to end its legal trade in ivory. The EU says it's reviewing, but that its measures are already strict. Enrico Brivio is the EU Commission Environment Spokesperson. We have to uh, underline that this was admitted only on very restricted uh, cases already and for the EU uh, fighting uh, poaching and uh, illegal ivory trafficking it's really a priority on our action plan. The European Commission is set to outline a proposal on this issue in July. Currently, ivory carved or worked before 1976 is legal to be imported and exported from the EU. But activists say any legal trade allows for loopholes which encourages poaching in Africa, so-called blood ivory. Large quantities of legal ivory are bought and sold here in Brussels, which remains a thriving antiques hub. Intricately carved tusks like 19th century Japanese pieces are worth in the region of 200,000 rand. The traders in Brussels say they don't want to see elephants killed, but that they can't understand an all-out ban in the sale of existing pieces. In addition to the African leaders' call, a petition in Europe to ban the legal ivory trade has received 1.2 million signatures and has been handed in to the EU. Those who put it together say their research shows it's what Europeans want. Stacey McLennan is the EU Office Director for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. But over 65% of Europeans support an all-out ban on ivory trade in Europe. And over 90% of them said they have no interest in you know, buying ivory products. So this is an outdated market. It's unnecessary. And the fact that legal markets still exist is just driving demand. It's giving legitimacy to the trade. And you know, it's leading to poaching in Africa, which needs to stop. A ban by China in legal ivory back in December 2017 has increased pressure on Europe to follow suit. Campaigners say as long as ivory can be sold, elephants will be killed. Jack Parrick, Brussels. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, controversial Kenyan lawyer and self-declared general of the newly formed national resistance movement, Meguna Meguna, has been deported from Kenya to Dubai. South African diplomats meet with the senior leadership of the United Nations peacekeeping operations to discuss how the country can root out sexual exploitation and abuse within its ranks in peacekeeping missions. And at least 68 people have been killed in a fire following a riot by prisoners at a police station in the Venezuelan city of Valencia. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. The Orgiek People's Development Programme is focusing on enhancing the community-driven development approaches that are well-suited to the holistic perspective of the Orgiek community in Kenya. The organization also ensures that meaningful consultation and participation of the Orgiek community on decision-making affecting gender and youth empowerment. Daniel Kobe, Executive Director of the Orgiek People's Development Programme, says the building of modern latrines for girls in the Tiritagoi Primary School is a very significant project to improve the lives of the girls in the community. Now, OPDP is a community NGO based in Kenya, and we are more or less standing and for the rights of the Ogier community in a holistic manner. Why am I saying holistic? It's because we deal with human rights, we deal with issues of natural resources and environment, we also try to help in empowering the Ogeg women and youth on issues of livelihood. So we approach it in a very, very holistic manner. We deal with issues related to climate change. We also try even to support children in school with sanitation issues for schools and young girls in primary school and secondary schools. So we are trying to do a lot of things at the same time. How has the Ogiek People's Development Program worked uh, towards uh, the promotion of the Ogiek culture, land, language, environment, and human rights? Sincerely, as an organization, we have been in the field for the last 16 years, and we have worked very, very well on issues of land rights. That's why we even fought until we went to the African Court on Human and People's Rights in Arusha, Tanzania. And if you may be aware, we won a landmark case on 26 May 2017, where the Ogiek were given their land, or rather they were given the rights to restitution of their land. And right now we are waiting for the government to act by implementing the case of the rights of the Ogiek as far as land is concerned. And on issues of human rights, we have been empowering and ensuring the Ogiek have empowered both women and children and youth on issues of human rights in a holistic manner. We have also been trying to promote uh, the Ogiek language because it is under a lot of threat to assimilation. It's a lot of threats because our land has potential, it's very, very fertile, and everybody wants to be in more forest complex. And this has been the cause of the fight we have had with all the communities and even the government of Kenya. How is the environmental programs progressing? Environmental program, in fact, I'm really pleased to inform you that the last two years we started reforestation of Mao. We came up with a scout. We have rehabilitated by planting indigenous trees in over 20 hectares. And we have been given more hectares by the Kenya Forest Service because right now we are still under the government jurisdiction. We have not been given the more forest to be our land, but we are working closely with the Kenya Forest Service to ensure that we do, or rather we reforest and prove to them that it's not the object destroying the mouth, it is the businessmen who are logging and selling both forest and timber for the consumption of the towns around, that is Nakuru, Nairobi, Mombasa, and all the towns in Kenya where they need for building and for construction. Talking about the various development projects, 
undertaken by the Ogiak People's Development Program. How significant is the building of modern latrines for girls as it is a challenge facing many countries on the continent and the world at large with regards to ablution facilities? Thanks very much for that because really it is something right now we are trying to get support both uh, nationally, international friends and partners of the OGIEC because as we have been distributing sanitary towels to the girls in some of the schools, we realize one of the schools called Tritagoy is in a very, very pathetic situation and our girls are unable to continue going to schools because during the time of the administration, they have a problem even where to clean themselves, where to do that pertains to their health as girls. And this is a very significant project because it is a way of helping and giving to the community and ensuring that our girls remain in school because it has been a challenge. Our illiteracy level among the girls is far much higher than the boys. And this has been contributed by issues, which one of them is the issue of the poor sanitation among some of the schools. But what is the school I've just mentioned? It's our primary school in Nakuru County, in Njoro sub-county. That was Daniel Kobe, Executive Director of the Ogiek People's Development Program on the line from Nakuru in Kenya, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. The government of South Africa should give title deeds to landowners to enable emerging farmers to get loans from banks. A panel of experts say lack of capital to buying farming equipment and seeds is the biggest challenge facing small-scale and emerging farmers in the country today. The experts want government to prioritize property rights and deeds when making amendments to the property clause. The speakers were debating land reform policies at a two-day land summit in Johannesburg. Amina Akram reports. Brian Whitaker is director at Vumelana Advisory Fund. He says constitutional and legislative changes will take time and all stakeholders involved in the land reform debate need to have practical solutions to work while we wait for this. I think the debate on expropriation without compensation will end with agreement. And indeed, if you look at the Constitution and look back on how this was crafted, there are some very careful balances that have been struck. I think we are going to get an amendment which makes some of the intention more explicit. And that that will mean that we will get expropriation without compensation in defined circumstances. Unused land, land acquired by state grants, and it will be regulated by expropriation regulation. Whitaker says for land reform to work, resources must be enhanced and budgets increased. Restrictions on access to capital have to be removed. But when communities have land settled on them, they sign a Section 42D agreement under the Restitution Act in which they undertake not to bond the property. Now, now that makes success very difficult. Give back just the land leaves those people in a position where failure is very likely. Kas Kovadia is Managing Director of Banking Association of South Africa. He says land redistribution must be done in a way that it can produce and have access to markets. Emerging farmers are not able to get finance because they don't own the land. Land is the collateral that gives you the finance. That's property rights. 
we need to work very hard to ensure people do own assets because that contributes to addressing inequality. CEO of Green South Africa, Yanni De Villiers, says all stakeholders need to work together to make land reform work. He pointed out how the mining sector could work together with agriculture. In, in Mapumalanga, we lose a lot of our best agricultural soils to mining. If we're going to continue with that, we're going to run out of maize. We're going to produce less than 11 million tons. We're going to move the maize price up 75% and we're going to have a problem with food security. So, so it's not just land reform that we need to look at how we apply the, the soil and the land. We also need to look at the balance between mining and agriculture specifically. De Villiers also urged government to fast track its housing backlog. A lot of these occupations, that uh, land grabs that's taking place for people, it, it, the need is a, a lot bigger for housing and we can't try and fix everything in agriculture and not sort out the housing thing. Omri Van Zell is executive director at AgriSA. I go across the country and I speak to a lot of farmers all over South Africa and the guys are uncertain. The guys literally think people are going to pitch up there and take their land. Guys are not reinvesting in their businesses. They're not buying farms. There's 20,000 farms on the market. Remember, we, we also have to compete globally, right? And agriculture is a low margin business. Capital is shy. And the same thing is going to happen to real estate. Commercial agriculture is not the, is not the cause of all the wrongs in South African society. Agriculture experts say there should be a greater consultation with people about land reform. They also want Land Claims Commission to be better supported with a credible land registry with private-public partnerships. South Africa has about 40,000 commercial and around 400,000 emerging farmers, including 4 million subsistence farmers. Commercial farmers produce about 40% of commercially consumed agricultural produce. Government announced four commissions on land reform this year that will look at agricultural productivity, food security, investment and land reform policy and strategy. That report from Amina Akram. In January 2017, Finland began a social experiment. The government started paying 2,000 unemployment Finns a basic income. They each get a guaranteed $700 a month for two years. It's free money. It comes with no strings attached. The goal is simple. Government wants to find out if a basic income will encourage people to get back into work. Is this a solution for long-term unemployment? Here is a second of the BBC's Erika Banks reports from Finland. My name is Juha Jarvinen. I am 39 years old, father of six kids, an artist. I was making window frames, wooden decorative window frames, and uh, that was my business for seven years. All of these five, six years, what I have been unemployed, I have been dreaming to start a new company, new business. So I will try to start to shoot and uh, edit uh, commercial videos for small companies to YouTube and uh, social media. But also, also, I want to do artwork, creative work. Juha is optimistic that basic income will make it easier for him to get back into employment. He's full of enthusiasm. Despite going bankrupt, thanks to the financial security provided by basic income, he's now about to start his new business. 
With the basic income, the biggest change is the bureaucracy. Like before, I need to fill up different kind of forms and I need to meet employment office people. And I was spending quite a lot of my time to uh, stuff what has no meaning. With basic income, I can focus on the more important things. I don't need to spend uh, my time to something what has no meaning. And I really believe also that this would be super good for all of the people. So I got uh, my humanity back and I can start to do things what I can do and what I want to do and I can use my skills. By the time I went back to visit Juha in the winter, he'd set up his business and he was planning to expand. Ten months after the starting of the experiment, I still feel super happy and free and independent. I got my new business registered and have been running that for a few last months. The easiest money is uh, making those drums and selling. It's handcraft. It's uh, not super good for business. It's like uh, it takes times to make, and uh, but I love it. One very big thing I'm planning with a couple of my friends to start uh, art B&B. It's like uh, like Airbnb, bed and breakfast, but with art. We have some studios, so people would stay here, spend here like one week, two weeks or one year making their own art. And Yuha has some other plans too. He's talking to the local mayor about transforming an old art school and turning it into artists' workshops. And Yuha's optimistic that he'll be on a firm financial footing after the basic income experiment is over at the end of the year. I think for me it's enough. I believe that after one year my business is uh, running and it's quite stable and I don't need other help. I very much believe that basic income would be super good for finances and the economy of the government. I feel that it should be given for others also. That report by the BBC's Erica Bank. It is 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tavisa Luhoko. Good morning and thanks, Lulu. The 500 million US dollars at the center of an alleged fraud involving the son of Angola's former president Jose Eduardo dos Santos was transferred out of a standard chartered account held by Angola's central bank. The Angolan prosecutor's general's office said on Monday that it had charged Jose Filemno dos Santos, the former president's son, and Volta Felipe da Silva, the former governor of the central bank known as Banco Nacional de Angola, with fraud over the case. Britain's National Crime Agency said last week that $500 million had been frozen in the United Kingdom as part of an alleged investigation into a potential fraud against Angola's central bank and could be returned to the southern African country. 
Lesotho's Minister of Trade and Industry, Defoma Pesela, says while the idea of being part of the African continental free trade area can be an appealing and noble one, a lot still needs to be clarified before Lesotho can commit to the agreement, as it could hurt the country's revenue generation capacity. Mapesela's remarks come in the wake of Lesotho's decision to join nine other countries, including continental economic powerhouses, Nigeria and South Africa, who refrained from signing the CFTA at the recent meeting of the African Union member states in Rwanda. 44 African countries signed the landmark deal, which is aimed at facilitating inter-Africa trade. The fifth largest shareholder in Marion Roberts plans to reject a hostile buyout bid from Germany's Aton that values the South African builder at nearly 600 million US dollars. An analyst at Old Mutual's equity investment arm, Brian Pyle, says that the offer of $1.03 per share is below what is believed to be fair. Financial services conglomerate Old Mutual holds about 5% of Marion Roberts, whose board snubbed the offer from its biggest shareholder, Aton a company owned by German investor Lutz Helmich. Ratings agency Moody's has downgraded South Africa's power utility Eskom Holdings' long-term corporate family rating from B1 to B2. B2 is the fifth rung of sub-investment grade debt. Moody says there are a number of improvements at ESCOM in relation to its corporate governance and liquidity. However, it says that there is limited visibility of ESCOM's plans for placing a longer-term business and financial position on a sustainable footing. Last month, Standard & Poor's downgraded the power utility from B- to C plus, citing liquidity concerns and insufficient the government support that left it at risk of a debt default. Overly indebted South African households will get slight relief after the Reserve Bank cut its rates by 25 basis points. This has taken the repo rate at which the Reserve Bank lends to commercial banks to 6.5%. This has taken the prime rate to 10% with effect from Thursday. The combination of a firmer rand and the expected stability prompted Wednesday's rate cut. Economist Elise Kruger says this will go a long way to relieving households. The main point to make here, and it's, it's something that all South Africans need to just heed, is the fact that we shouldn't take it for granted that just because they've cut once, they're going to cut you know, two or three more times. I think there's going to be a very, very shallow rate cut cycle. As a result of that, we need to continue to behave very cautiously in dealing with our financial affairs and not use this as a green light to ramp up into any fresh levels of debt. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.71 to the South African rand. It's at 9.32 in Botswana and at 9.47 in Zambia. 7.0 pence to the British pound. 8.0 cents to the euro. Gold, $1,327. Platinum, $9.35 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $69.77 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Figile, Kenya ready for the Commonwealth Games? Oh yes, Kenya and a whole other teams that have uh, already taken off to the Gold Coast as well as uh, yeah, the, the other one that uh, 
just left the living tomorrow it's mm. Mala oh, Zambia mm. yeah mm. but uh, many many countries are there they've already settled South African team left on Wednesday they're already there as well settled and then they they're all ready for the gold course next week something to look forward to give us yes, an update of course Our will begin with football news. The West African Football Union, WAFU, has made a draw for its forthcoming competition where Gambia will play against Senegal in Group B. The draw took place at the Ministry of Youth and Sports, currently housed at the Samuel Kayon Dowi SKD Sports Complex in Painesville, near Monrovia. The West African Football Union months ago selected Liberia to host the WAFU Fox Under-20 Youth Tournament that will run from the 24th of April to the 6th of May. In a Group A, Liberia, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau and Sierra Leone, whilst Group B included Senegal, Mali, Gambia and Guinea-Conakry. And in local football, South African Premiership Club, Mamelodi Sundowns head coach Peter Musimane gave credit to coach Mushin Etugral for building a strong side during his tenure as a mentor. Musimane was speaking ahead of his size clash against Cape Town City in the Netbank Cup last eight on Sunday. Okay, we'll get back to that sound of Musimani about the Cape Town City. And Darren, Australian coach Darren Lehman has apologized to the public and called for forgiveness for the grave mistake made by the trio of test players banned for their role in the ball tempering scandal that has rocked the sport. Also, I'd like to apologise to the Australian public uh, and the cricket family. Um, what happened on Saturday is nothing. Something is not something that is acceptably acceptable, especially from the Australian cricket team. As been made clear by James yesterday and today, the coaches and support staff had no prior knowledge of the incident. He has covered a lot of already what is said between myself and the players during the match. Like all of Australia, we're extremely disappointed, and as a team, we know we have have let so many people down and for that I am truly sorry. Africa, rise and shine. An emotional lemon cleared of any wrongdoing by a Cricket Australia investigation told reporters that the band players Steve Smith, David Warner and Cameron Bancroft were not bad people and called for them to be given a second chance as he expressed concerns over their mental state. And lastly, Kenyan Sevens coach Innocent Simuyu has named one debutant in his 13-man squad for the next month's Commonwealth Games on Australia's Gold Coast. Impala winger Ian Menjire is one of the two changes to the side that reached the final of the World Rugby 7 side in the series in Vancouver, Canada, earlier this month. Fullback Augustine Lugonzo returns to the team after missing both the Las Vegas and Vancouver 7 series due to personal commitments. Kenya have been drawn against former champions New Zealand, Canada and Zambia in Pool C at the Commonwealth Games, which will be held on the 13th of April. That's the Sport News this hour.
Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is Miriam Makeba with a song titled Aluta Continua. Mozambique 